Good morning to you. It, uh, it's good to have you here in our second service of the morning. And um, I want to thank uh, Tom for reading the passage for us today. We are down to the last 11 verses of the book of Genesis. And we are wrapping up the story today of Joseph. And so, uh, Tom, thanks for reading those verses. I was actually thinking as you were reading those, uh, and we're talking about providence today, um, I was thinking it might have been um, amazing, maybe 25 years ago, if somebody had told you one day, you would be reading the Bible in a church and your son would be a pastor leading worship. And uh, God's providence is pretty good. It's pretty amazing to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I uh, thank you this morning for bringing us here. And I thank you that we do not come here by accident. We did not come here by the schemes of men, but we came here because you wanted us here today. And I pray as we open up your word today that you will speak to our hearts and that we will hear from you. Father, I believe that uh, while this may not be uh, one of the most important sermons we ever hear, it is certainly one of the most important passages that we will ever hear. And I pray that uh, you will bring it alive to us today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Uh, so I, um, I wear glasses. I've been wearing glasses since I was in the fourth grade. In the fourth grade, I uh, went in like we always did when I was a kid. I don't know if we still do this today. And you know, they test your hearing every year and they test your eyesight every year. And my parents got a call after that. And they said, hey, your son, uh, he can't see very well. He needs some glasses. And my parents were like, that's crazy. He could see just fine. He's just making that up. So they, uh, they actually made a couple, maybe wait for a couple weeks and finally took me to the eye doctor who said, actually, uh, he really can't see that well. He needs some glasses. And so I got fitted with some really uh, nice, super thick, black, clunky glasses. Remember those? Like before they were cool. And uh, I had them. When you're in the fourth grade, that's just like a great big sign that says, punch me. Um, I'm a nerd, you know. And so I got to wear those uh, as I was growing up. And I, you know, I never really liked it. I didn't wa like wearing glasses. Um, now I'm at the point in my life where I go back every two or three months maximum to see my eye doctor because I got all sorts of issues going on now. And every time I go in, even though they're not writing me a prescription, they still make me do the eye chart thing, right? So like probably for some of you, that's like not a big deal. For me, it's, I like, I, it's terrorizing. So like I'll go in and they'll always do it. Okay, cover your, cover your eye and read the chart. And I'll be like, I can read the first line and maybe the second line. They're like, can you read the the third line, I'll be like, no, not really. And then they'll kind of be like, really? <laughs> like, like, I can see, I can hear them writing in F on my report. Like I can hear them, oh, okay, so you failed that. Cover the other eye. Let's see how that does. And every time I do it, I just dread it. I dread it because I know it's not a test, but it feels like a test. And every time I take the test, I feel like I flunked, all right? And, and every, but here's the thing. It's actually a good thing that I go in, and it's a good thing that I get my eyes checked because they're able to write me a prescription. Actually, I have three prescriptions for three different pairs of glasses I have to kind of carry around with me anymore. I have like a, a belt there, and um, it's very cool. And uh, switch my glasses out because uh, my glasses, the, the lenses that they correct 
my eyesight so that I can do things like drive, which you should be very thankful I wear glasses uh, if you ever drive in the same town I do. And it allows me to do things like read and, and look at a computer. It allows me to, you know, write sermons and preach them and uh, look across. The, I, my sight's so bad, if I was sitting across the table, I couldn't actually see you, uh, your face very clearly at all. And so it helps me to live life. It, it corrects my vision somewhat and allows me to kind of interact in my world. And I, so I'm very thankful, even though I feel like a failure every two months when I take the test, I'm still very thankful for it, and I'm thankful that I have lenses that correct my eyesight. Now, that being said, in this series, we've uh, thrown around a lot of terms, and one term that we've thrown around a lot is the term providence. And um, I have, I've told you that there's, pro- the word providence is a very deep word, and we could, you know, we could talk about it for weeks and weeks and weeks, or I could just give you the, the quick version, which is, when I think about providence, I, there's a lot of things going on, but two things for sure that are going on. I think of providence as two things happening at the same time. One is that God is sovereign. So we talk about God being sovereign, so God accomplishes everything he sets out to accomplish, and we like to say nothing can frustrate his will. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we would say God is good. And that's very important when we think about God as sovereign. Because when we put them together, we use the word provident to describe the fact that we have a God, as one passage says, that works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. God is is sovereign, and we talk about providence. So sometimes people say things like, oh, wow, that was very provident, right? Like like something happened today, and I didn't see it was coming, and God jumped in, and God did this thing, and it was very good and sovereign of God. The providence of God, though, is more than a theological construct, more than an idea. If that's all it is to you, then you're actually missing the best part. Because providence is like a pair of corrective lenses, Because as we go through this world, as we face challenges in this world, we are tempted to uh, give up, we are tempted to despair, and yet the lens of providence tells us that there is a God who is sovereign and that he is working good for us. It It is a lens through which we experience or ought to experience life, which takes us to our big idea this weekend. What I want to talk about is this, that life is left best through the lens of providence. So we can think of providence as a, as a lens that we can look at life through. It's a lens through which we can see the world as it, as it really is. Uh, to view the hard things. We all go through hard things in life. What is this hard thing? Why am I going through this hard thing? What will come about? Providence helps us understand how we ought to approach that. This is what Joseph does. Providence helps us understand how uh, to process uh, success in life. Um, hardships in life, um, difficult relationships in life, uh, as we go through our educational journey and our vocational journey, and as we deal with health stuff, how do we know how to look at it, how to think of it? Well, providence helps us to do that. Without the lens of providence, life can be stressful and, and hard and uncertain. And there can be a lot of fear about uh, important things in life that are, are coming that we have no control over. And that's a hard way to go through life, to go through life worried and stressed all the time because we're not looking through the lens of providence that tells us we have a God that is sovereign and we have a God that is good. We're looking at the last 11 verses today of Joseph's story. It kind of wraps it all up and I want to talk about 
providence. And in your notes, I've got a couple of things about providence I want to talk about today. The first is this. I want to talk about providence and forgiveness. It's a big theme that we see as we look at the life of Joseph. Now, when we think about Joseph, and we've been uh, 10 weeks in this, and we've covered a ton of story, and, and I always like to just review, so we're all on the same page. So just by way of review, let's remember where we've come uh, as we began in Genesis chapter 37, and have traced the story of Joseph. So we have Jacob. Jacob was the, the father of this family. His name uh, we know as Israel. Uh, and he uh, fell in love with Rachel. And he wanted to marry Rachel. And he, so he worked for Rachel's dad for seven years. And he thought he was going to marry Rachel. But in fact, he was going to marry Leah. This was the way that things worked in that culture. Leah was the older daughter. So Jacob thinks I'm getting married. And he finds out, oh, I'm marrying Leah. But it, Leah isn't the one he wanted to marry. And by the way, it's a package deal. She came with her servant, Zilpah. So they kind of came together. But uh, Jacob said, I want to marry Rachel. So the dad said, well, okay, work another seven years and you can marry Rachel. And so he did. So he got Rachel and he got her servants. So now he's got really two wives and two servants. But practically speaking, he's got four wives. This is a very, very dysfunctional family. I would never recommend this for a hundred million reasons. But as he finds out, he has four wives suddenly and you get all this dysfunction. So Leah starts having kids. Uh, but Rachel's the one he loves. Leah has a kid. She has one, two, three, four. Rachel's getting pretty stressed out about this because she's not having any kids. So she tells Jacob, why don't you, you know, take my uh, servant and because that's what could go wrong wrong there. And so he does. And she has a couple of kids. And now Leah still isn't having kids at this point. And so she says, why don't you take my servant? I mean, you've already taken one. So he does and has a couple more kids. And then Leah starts having kids again. And then finally, finally, Rachel begins having children. She has two and Joseph is the oldest. So Joseph is the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife. I know this is just dripping with all sorts of dysfunction here. Now, Jacob loves Joseph more than the other brothers, and he favors him, and all the brothers know it. That doesn't go over really well. They're very jealous of Joseph, so much so that at one point, right around when he's 17 years old, they decide they want to murder him. They want to kill their brother. They, they despise him so much. So they come up with a plan to kill him, but at the last minute they decide, why should we kill him and be guilty of murder when we could sell him into slavery and make some money and then we're not murderers, right? So it's kind of, it feels like a win-win. We're not murderers and we get money. So that's the plan. They sell him into slavery. He ends up being taken to Egypt. In Egypt, he's sold into the home of a guy named Potiphar, a very uh, powerful man in Egypt. He, Joseph becomes a slave of Potiphar, and he becomes, we're told, a very successful slave because the Lord was with him. And so everything that he did prospered, and, and Potiphar really liked Joseph. Well, so did Potiphar's wife. Um, and Potiphar's wife was used to getting what she wanted, and what she wanted was Joseph. And when Joseph refused, she came up with a story in which she said that he came in and, and maybe tried to rape her. And so uh, when Potiphar finds out, he has Joseph thrown into prison. So this is Joseph's story, right? When he's 17, he's betrayed by his brothers, and he's sold into slavery, and slavery isn't low enough. And so now he becomes a prisoner. And in prison, we're told that the Lord was with him, and he was also successful there. Like, no matter where this guy goes, God is with him, and he's successful. But he's not just a prisoner. He becomes a slave of prisoners. So, because, you know, prisoner isn't quite low enough. So now he's, he's, he's serving prisoners as a prisoner. And there's two high-profile prisoners that come into prison while he's there. 
the cupbearer uh, for Pharaoh and the chief baker for Pharaoh. So they're in there and one day they have these dreams and they can't interpret them and they're all upset and Joseph says, I'll interpret them for you and he does interpret them and it turns out the interpretations are true. Uh, the uh, baker ends up losing his head. The cupbearer ends up getting his job back and before he goes back, Joseph says, when you go back and work for Pharaoh, would you tell him about me? I am unjustly in prison and maybe he can set me free. Well, the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph for two more years. So for two more years, he's just suffering in prison. And then Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And no one can interpret the dreams. And the cupbearer is like, hey, I remember this guy in prison. And he could interpret dreams. His name is Joseph. So they get Joseph all cleaned up, bring him before Pharaoh. And he says, basically, Pharaoh, here's your dreams in a nutshell. You, the first dream was telling you that there's going to be seven years of surplus in the land agriculturally. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. So here's my advice. For the seven good years, save up a whole lot of grain so you'll be able to get everyone through the seven bad years. Pharaoh says, that sounds like a great plan. And he gives Joseph the job of overseeing all this. And Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. It's a, it's a stunning reversal, if you will, of fortunes. And so now he's in this position and he's saving up food for seven years, doing his job, doing it so well, he can't even keep track of all the surplus grain anymore. And then the famine comes. After the famine's been around for a little while, his brothers who betrayed him and sold him into slavery, and by the way, they never told their dad what they did. They're all back in their homeland and they're starving. And so they go, 10 of the brothers go to Egypt to ask for food. They don't know their brother's still alive. When they get there to buy food, they end up coming face to face with Joseph. Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. Joseph decides that he would love reconciliation, but he doesn't know if he can trust his brothers. Are they still betrayers? Are they still liars? Are they still murderers? He doesn't, he doesn't know. So he puts them through a couple of tests to see if, if their character has changed, and he decides that it has, and then there's a, a reuniting of the brothers, and the father ends up moving the whole family to Egypt. And now when we look at the story here today, we're 17 years later after that reunion. Um, there, uh, during these years, they have been given land, they have been given food, they have been blessed. Uh, their father, Jacob, dies. They, they bury him in Canaan. They come back to Egypt, which is kind of where we pick up the story today in verse 15 of the very last chapter of Genesis. It says this, now when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, so they, they buried their dad, they said, now it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the, all the evil that we did to him. So there's a bit of a, an irony here. The, the story started in chapter 37 uh, with the brothers' very real hatred of Joseph. And it ends with their imaginary fear that he might hate them. What they're afraid of is that maybe for the last 17 years, Joseph was just pretending to like them because their dad was around. And now that their dad is gone, they're afraid. Joseph is going to turn on them, which is odd when you think about it. Because for the past 17 years, Joseph is the one who sought reconciliation with the brothers. He's the one who cared for them, provided for them, fed them, protected them, blessed them. But they had hated him so much as a child that I think they cannot imagine that he doesn't hate them now. And I say that because I, I'm afraid sometimes we can do that with people, can't we? 
Maybe we find it hard to forgive people, so we just project that on everyone else. And there's a warning for us here. Not everybody is like us. In verse 16, it goes on and it says this. So they sent a message to Joseph. And and it said, your father gave this command before he died. This is his command. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, scholars believe that the message they sent was a message they made up. That uh, Jacob never said these things to him. So it's kind of a pseudo-confession. I would call it like a, uh, it's a burrito uh, confession. That's what I call it. It's like the filling is truth, but it's wrapped in a lie. So it's kind of a burrito uh, confession, if you will. So it's filled with truth. Uh, Twice they said that they transgressed. They, They said they sinned. They said they did evil. All of that's true. Um, notice they don't call it a youthful indiscretion. Well, we were young, we were foolish. Uh, they didn't call it a mistake. Uh, they called it what it is. They said it was sin. And, and they asked forgiveness, but, but they wrapped it in a lie. Why would they do that? Why would they make up this story that their father said this? Why would they do that? And I, I think when you think about the story, like Joseph loved them. He loved them. So why are they so afraid of him? And, and I don't know, but I think part of it might be this. I think it may be that they simply cannot imagine an absolute and gracious forgiveness. They cannot imagine. They can't picture it. And so they resort to manipulation. We're not sure that Joseph has really forgiven us, so we're going to have to manipulate him to forgive us. So let me just, let me just say this. As I was thinking about this this week, it made me think a lot about the gospel. And we talk about the gospel every weekend here. But let me just say this. When we trust Christ, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God forgives us. He forgives us of all our sin. All our past sin, all our current sin, all our future sin. All of it has been taken care of. And along with the sin goes the guilt and goes the shame. If we have been forgiven of all of our sins through the work of Christ on the cross, then shame and guilt go with it. But sometimes we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. And I find that there are times when I'm having discussions with people who are believers, who have placed their faith in Christ, who will tell me, I don't know if I'm forgiven for all my sins. And I'll often ask, have you placed your faith in Christ? Yes, I have. Have you confessed Jesus Lord? Yes, I have. Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Yes, I have. Then what's the problem? Well, I don't feel forgiven. Because we begin to think that maybe God is like us. Maybe God is like us. Maybe he forgives some sins. But maybe there's a few sins that he he can't quite forgive yet. Because we kind of do that with other people, don't we? We find some sins easy to forgive, and then some sins we're like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. What do we do when we're not sure God forgives us of all our sins? Sometimes we resort to trying to manipulate God. And there's a lot of ways that we do it that we might not even recognize. Like sometimes we do it by just trying to feel bad enough. And I'll see people do this sometimes. Like, well, I'm not sure God forgave that sin. So if I, if I try to act like I'm really sad and, and full of shame and I cry a lot, then maybe God will forgive me. It's kind of works though. And it's kind of manipulating God if I, if I feel bad. enough, Or maybe if I do a lot of extra good stuff, then God will give me a little extra forgiveness. Or if I do certain rituals, then God will forgive me. But here's the deal. God is not like us. So we need to stop acting like he is. 
When God forgives us, he does it completely. I know that we don't always do that, but again, that's not God. When God forgives us, he forgives us completely because of the work of Christ on the cross. And when Christ did his work on the cross, he said, it is finished, it is done, it is complete. There's nothing that you can add to salvation. In Romans 8, it tells us this, there is therefore now no condemnation, zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the irony here is that we as believers can be completely forgiven of our sin through faith, and yet we live in constant fear of the punishment of God. We are afraid. Is this, and sometimes people say, I'm going through this thing and I'm afraid it's happening because of, you know, that God's mad at me, that God's angry with me because there was a sin I did and maybe he hasn't completely forgiven me yet. We forfeit the peace of God and the joy of God that should be ours. And our relationship with God is not what it could be, not what it should be. Because we think that God is like us. God is not like us. And his forgiveness is not like ours. And so the brothers come to Joseph. And they make up this story because they're afraid. Maybe Joseph hasn't completely forgiven them. And when they, when they tell this lie to Joseph, his response is that it says he wept. He wept. He wept when they spoke to him. I think he wept because he had forgiven them and he had served them and he had blessed them and he protected them and he loved them. What more could he do for them? And they're still afraid of him. They're still afraid that he might harm them. And it made him sad for them. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him. And they said, behold, we are your servants. They're groveling now. They're so afraid. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Ah, providence and forgiveness. There's also a picture here of providence and relationships that we see. So the brothers, they, they bring this lie, this, this uh, for confession wrapped in a, in a lie. And I love how he responds to them. In fact, I want to notice, and I've got it in your notes, kind of three things we notice in his response to them. And the first is this. We notice that Joseph was a man who trusted God to right the wrongs that had been done to him in life. In verse 19, again, he said this. Joseph said, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now, on a practical level, he kind of was. He had uh, all the power to punish them. He could have had them thrown into prison. He could have had them uh, tortured. He could have had them killed. But Joseph says he trusts God with the wrongs that have been done to him. He trusts God. In Romans 12, 19, it says this, Beloved, never avenge yourself. That word never is really important. You might underline that. Never avenge yourself. It's a really interesting we, uh, word. In the Greek, it means uh, never. Uh, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. La never leaves no loopholes. There's no loopholes. Never, ever do this. So the brothers had personally wronged Joseph. The brothers had meant evil, done evil, Certainly they deserve punishment and payback, but Joseph leaves the payback to God. Joseph says, I'm going to trust God. 
Maybe God will pay them back. Maybe God won't pay them back. That's up to God. I'm going to let God be God. You know, it makes me wonder how much trouble we cause when we just won't let God be God. When we just cannot trust God with vengeance. When someone wrongs us and we decide that we don't really trust God that much, so we scheme up ways to make them pay for what they've done to us. To, to manipulate them, to guilt them. You know, maybe we just always have it in our arsenal of, of verbiage. And we like to remind them every now and then about what they did. A year later, a decade later, we like just to remind them. That's a way of making them pay. We hold on to bitterness. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, to See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, this doesn't mean that you're a doormat and that you just, somebody hurts you and sins against you and you just, you know, go back and do more. In fact, that's not what Joseph does. Remember when Joseph finally comes face to face with his brothers? He wants to trust them, but he's not sure that they are trustable. So he decides that he's going to, you know, do a couple tests and see if their characters had changed. And in fact, it had changed. But his goal had always been restoration, not payback. They did evil to him, but he did good to them. There's another thing that he tells them when he responds, and that is that he saw God's providence in all things. He tells them that. In verse 20, he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me. Let's not, let's not soft sell this, okay? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph discerned God's good providence even in their evil. Now, I don't know that Joseph knew that when he was 17. I don't have any reason to believe that when Joseph was 17 and his brother sold him into slavery, that he could have possibly ever imagined his future, that he would be in Potiphar's house, that he would be put in prison, that he would end up standing before Pharaoh. He doesn't know any of this stuff, but he does trust God. He trusts the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And so when, he, when he's in a situation that most people would see as, as hopeless, he looks through the eyes of providence and sees God is there and God is working and God is with him. Here's what he told his brother 17 years earlier in Genesis 45. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Notice what he says. He says, you sold me with evil intentions, but actually God sent me for good. You did this, but God was actually doing this. And what Joseph sees here is, is, is divine sovereignty and human responsibility acting in tandem with each other. Now, if you think about this too much, you'll get a headache and your brain will explode if you try to figure out how God does this. But God always works out his sovereign purposes and those purposes are always for the good. Always for the good, always for the good of those who trust him. In Genesis 45, it goes on and he says, and God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on this earth. This is such an astounding verse to me. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. It was God. They may have been, but wait a minute. Didn't we come up with the plan? Well, yes, you did. Didn't we throw you into pit? Well, actually, you did. Didn't we sell you into slavery? Well, you did, but God did. 
Joseph affirmed that God used the evil things that his brothers did. And here's the part that always just blows me away. Here's what he's saying. God used the evil things that the brothers did to bless the brothers. Because they're the ones who get fed and saved in the end. I I wonder how many of us would be okay with that. If someone did evil to you, and then God just let you know, by the way, I'm going to bring about some really great stuff for them. (laughs) Would you be like, that's awesome, God, sign me up. Now, let's be honest, some great things happened to Joseph too. But Joseph suffered a lot, a lot of years of suffering. And yet, Joseph celebrates what God did. Years later, many years later, the nation of Israel would be living in rebellion against God. After God had given them a promised land and given them kings and and given them protection, they still rebel against God. And ultimately, God decides that he's going to discipline them by having a a foreign nation, uh, the Babylonians are going to come in and capture them and take them into into captivity for a while. And they know it's about to come. And right before it happens, God sends them a prophet named Jeremiah, and this is what he says to them. Now, a lot of times when we read this verse, by the way, we read it and we think, oh, this is a super great verse that God's speaking to people and a super blessing, but this is spoken to people who are about to go into captivity. And Jeremiah says, God says to you, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, from a human point of view, it looks like life is out of control and evil is going to win the day. And yet God says, I have plans for you, and they are for your welfare. That's the word shalom. It's for your wholeness. It's, for, it's, it's meant to bless you. It's been said that the ultimate expression of all of this is found in Romans 8, 28. We like to talk about this verse a lot, don't we? And we know that for those who love God, right, all things, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We love that verse, Now, this doesn't mean that believers are shielded from hardship. It doesn't mean that evil won't be done to us. That's not what it means. It just means that God's plans are never evil in the believer's life, and it will always be for our well-being, and it even includes the evil that is done to us always, always, always. So we can always count on the sovereignty and the goodness of God in our lives. So when you combine together Genesis 50-20, which we've read, and Jeremiah 29-11, which we just read in Romans 8-28, What we get is this, and I've I've kind of put this in your notes. I don't think it's word for word, but I put it this way. God is so great that he not only breaks in life to do miracles. So let me just say this for a minute. A lot of times when we think about um, the, the providence of God, God does this amazing thing in the midst of evil. We often think of God working miracles, working, you know, uh, uh, in contrary to the laws of nature. And sometimes he does that. But I think that's really, when you think that that's how God has to work to be sovereign, you're kind of missing the point. It goes on and says this. Let me read it again. God is so great that he not only breaks into life to do miracles, but is involved concurrently in all that occurs in this world without violating the nature of things. In other words, he is non-miraculously through everyday life using all events for the good of his people. So God doesn't have to work miracles to bring about a sovereign will. He just does it in a natural course of things. 
Now, every now and then God works a miracle. He doesn't do it because it's the only way to bail himself out of a tough situation. He does it for us. He does it for our encouragement. But the point is this. If you are in Christ, you can be sure that everything, even the evil that is done around you, will work out for your good. And when you believe this, it will change the way that you see the world around you. It will change the way that you see hardship, that you see difficulties. It will change the way that you experience life. It will change the way you view success and hardship and good times and hard times. It will impact your stress level when you begin to view life through the providence of God. Well, he goes on and he says one other thing here. He tells the brothers that his goal is always to repay evil with kindness. In verse 21, he says this, So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So despite what the brothers, uh, despite their attempted manipulation of him and, and telling this lie, he still responds to them with kindness, as he's always done. And Joseph is really reflecting what Jesus would teach so many years later. In Luke 6, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. You see, when you believe that God is sovereign and when you believe that God is good, when you believe those two things, right, and when you believe that he will always bring about the best for you, then you can love your enemies. Have you ever noticed it's hard to love your enemies? It's hard, to, it's hard to let people gossip about you and slander you and make your life difficult. But it's not so hard when you, when you really believe that God is sovereign and God is good and God is going to do good things in your life. Then you can love your enemies and then you, you can do good to them. And then you're free to bless people who intend evil for you. Which brings us to the, the last point we want to mention as we close up this, this chapter. And that is providence in life and providence in, in death. So as we come to the end of Genesis and to the end of Joseph's story, we pick it up again in verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir and the son of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. So he lives to be 110 years old. 93 of those years are lived in Egypt. 93. And despite probably what would have been a bleak outlook at 17 when he's been enslaved, despite that, he lives to see his children. He lives to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And that is providence for a man whose life seemed to be short. Lives to be 110 years old. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's, he's saying, someday we're going to leave this place. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones from here. Basically what he says is this, I know that we buried our dad in our, in our home country, but I don't want to be buried there. I want you to bury me here in Egypt. Why would he want to be buried in Egypt when that's not where his family is from? Hebrews, many years later, tells us why. In Hebrews eleven twenty two, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. 
So Joseph's last words are just exuding faith. What he's saying is this, I want to be buried in Egypt, unlike my father, because someday I know that God is going to lead us as a people out of here, and I want to be part of that. I want to be part of it. So just bury me here, and when that day comes, and when that great, amazing exodus comes, I want to be a part of it. So it goes on and it says this, so Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Actually, it literally says he was put in the coffin in Egypt, which signifies a sarcophagus, which was what they would bury high-ranking officials in. And, And then it would be placed in what they considered an eternal monument, that the bones would be there for all eternity. The Egyptians would consider it an eternal shrine, but the Israelites would see it as just a temporary holding place for the bones of Joseph. And some 400 years later, Moses and the Israelites would come and they would pick up those bones and they would take them with them as they would go to the promised land. And that is the story of Joseph. And for the next two weeks, by the way, we're gonna, we just decided to do a little extra two weeks in this series in which we're going to talk about how Joseph was a type of Christ. That is, we're going to talk about six ways in which Joseph reflects Jesus Christ. We're going to do three each week for the next two weeks. But I want to wrap up this morning by ending where we started. And that is to remind you that life is lived best through the lens of providence. That God is providentially working all things for our good. And life is best lived from that perspective, from that viewpoint, both in good times and in hard times. The best way to go through those is to go through them with the lens of providence, to know that God is sovereign and God is good. For Joseph, there were so many times in his life where things looked hopeless, and an average person would have probably lost all hope. When he was betrayed by his brothers, when he was thrown into a well and left for dead, that most people would have despaired. When he was sold into slavery, uh, most people would despair. When he was thrown into prison, most people would despair. When he is, when he is falsely accused of, of trying to rape a Potiphar's wife, and he may not have understood how it would all turn out, but he trusted God. And he saw all of those things in a different way that probably most people would. He knew that God was with him and he knew that God was for him. And I say that because I think we all face times in life where things don't look so good from our point of view, from a human point of view. And there are times in life that are difficult and we may not see what God is doing. You ever had one of those? And it's tough and it's difficult and you're like, God, I can't see you anywhere here. But here's the problem. When we cannot see what God is doing and when we refuse to look through the lens of providence, oftentimes we go to some not good places. Like maybe we begin to question God, right? God, where are you? God, do you care? God, are you compassionate? God, do you love me? God, have you really forgiven sins? Are you really sovereign? Do you really work all things for the good? And we begin to go in some very not good places in our relationship with God. And when we we look at our life through the lens of God's providence, it's a whole different, it makes it possible for us to live by faith and not by sight. And it makes it possible for us to trust God. In fact, it makes it possible for us in the midst of difficult circumstances to have peace and to have joy. It doesn't look natural and it isn't natural. It's supernatural. It's looking at life through the providence of God. 
And it also does one other thing. It makes it possible for us to have a, what I call a beyond me focus. Right? This whole series is called It's Beyond Me. Joseph was a man who lived his life that way. It was always about more than him. It was never just about him. It was always about his God, and it was always about his brothers, and it was always about his family, and it even was about the Egyptians and how he could bless other people. I mean, think about this. Think about Joseph, a man who in the midst of suffering was always blessing other people. And it's a challenge for us that we could be like him, that we could bless other people even when we're going through difficult times. Because without the lens of providence, life just tends to be all about me and the hard things and the difficult things and the evil things done to me and my need for justice. But when we look at life through the lens of God's providence, we're set free. We don't have to worry about getting people back anymore because we let God right the wrongs in our life. And we're just set free. We're free to serve others, to bless others, to forgive others, to love others, even the others who sin against us. Because we have a God that we can trust. We don't have to be God anymore. We don't have to play God anymore. We can let God be God. And we can live in the joy and the peace that comes through the providence of God. And we are free to think about other people. And we can have the attitude of Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. Even in the midst of his suffering. And so as we close, I want to just kind of ask you a couple questions. A few things to consider. Where do you need the lens of God's providence in your life right now. Now, the first one I want you to consider is just the grace of God, right? It may be that uh, you're one of those people, and I say one of those people because I'm, I'm talking to most of us. Just in my experience and talking with people, I find that it's very common for us to struggle with the idea that we are absolutely free and forgiven of our sin through what Christ has done for us. And I talk with people who've been Christians for years and they're still holding on to guilt and shame. So let me just say this. There's nothing more that God can do for you. He's already done everything he can do for you to show you that through Christ and through faith, you are free and forgiven. There's only one thing left for you to do. And that's believe him. To just believe that what he says is true. And on a daily basis, one of the ways we do that is we just put on the lens of providence. And we say, as I go through this day, I'm going to trust that God is sovereign and that God is good. And I'm going to let that influence the way that I experience life and the way that I experience my salvation. So I say it knowing that there are many of us who struggle with this at times. And maybe today, the message that God has for you is, you need to trust you need to trust that I am both sovereign and that I am good and that I have forgiven you through faith. Here's the second thing, though. Maybe you're going through some challenging thing right now. Maybe there's a few of you, five or six of you in this room who could say, I'm going through something really difficult right now. I want to encourage you to put on the lens of providence as you think about that thing today, the thing you're facing or the, or the person you're dealing with or the financial thing or whatever it is. You see, God, God is going to work something good in your life. So why wouldn't you just enjoy the process to make that choice? And the last thing is this. Who could you bless right now? Like maybe right in the middle of, see, you might say, I'm suffering, life's hard right now, I'm busy right now. Yeah, I know, I, I get how that is. But again, that's Joseph's life, isn't it? In the mid, Joseph wasn't like, when I get out of prison, I'll bless people. 
And when I get out of this pit, I'll bless people. Joseph blessed people everywhere he was, regardless of his circumstances. How could he do it? Well, again, because he trusted God, that God was with him and that God was in him, that God was working. How can we be a blessing to people in the midst of our own suffering? We trust God, his sovereignty and his goodness. And so we could go on, but honestly, I don't know what else I could say to you that would convince you of the sovereignty and the goodness of God. But it is a choice that you can make today to live life and view life through the lens of God's providence. Well, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to close together in a song. Father God, I thank you for uh, the last 10 weeks. I thank you for uh, these chapters in Genesis and that you uh, saw in your providence to have nearly a third of this book of Genesis be devoted to the life of this man, Joseph. We thank you for him. We thank you for his example of faith. And we thank you for the very clear message that he brought. That is, you are a God who is sovereign and who is good. And we can trust you. Father, this morning I pray that we would declare from our hearts that in fact we do trust you. That we would be people who would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And that in that we would know we have the forgiveness of our sin. That we have been made your children. That all of our sin has been forgiven, that all of our shame and guilt has been removed. And now we can walk through this life in the peace and joy of salvation. I pray that we would choose this day to view life through that lens. Through a lens that even in the midst of hardship, of difficulties, of disappointments, of difficult relationships, of questions about the future, that we will see all of that through the lens of providence, that we will trust you today, that we will trust that you are sovereign and trust that you are good and trust that you are going to work out all things for the good of those who love you and who have been called according to your purposes for us. And so I pray today that we would not just know this, but that we would allow it to be the way that we view life right here and right now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 